the MJ-12 story is, isn't over yet, because the government hasn't fessed up to it yet. <laughs> and for those of you who wonder what the heck is MJ-12 or Majestic 12 or Operation Majestic 12, it's kind of a fascinating story, but it fills in a gap. You see, there's a big question. Where did all the UFO sightings go that affect national security? I mean, you all realize that uh, we don't have our own radar sets. <laughs> I don't have one. The government owns the big radar sets in all countries. Uh, the spy satellites, we don't have our own. The government owns those. The aircraft with instrumentation that go up after UFOs, they belong to the government. The cameras, the instruments for monitoring the electromagnetic signatures of flying vehicles. And whether it's Russian or Chinese or alien, doesn't matter. It's the same technical problem. Get an instrument or a camera or whatever close enough to get some information. Where does all that data go? I visited Project Blue Book many times back in the 60s. Uh, I never saw any of that data. And so the resolution of this problem, hypothetically, has got to be someplace where all this stuff that can affect national security goes. And that became solidified, that, that notion. Back about 1979, when a memo written by Air Force General Carol Bolander was released, and in it, he had been asked, as I found out later when talking to him, he had been asked by the Air Force, what should we do about Project Blue Book? The University of Colorado studies said, close it, it's not doing anything for national security or technology or anything, and I agree with that. So General Bolander, an engineer, nothing to do with Blue Book, wrote a memo, which we didn't see until 10 years later. This is in 1969, he wrote the memo, and it resulted in the closure of Project Blue Book, which you'll still get here, hear about from the Air Force. That's the group that was concerned with UFOs and nothing to it, no national security concerns, nothing to worry about. Bolander said, simple words, Reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with JNAP, Joint Army-Navy-Air Force Publication 146, or Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system. That's an extraordinary claim. Every year the Air Force says, we only had Project Blue Book, forget about it, no national security concerns. He said, two paragraphs later, if we close Project Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report UFO sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures designed for that purpose. So the question is, what happened to those reports? They're the only ones I'm interested in. I mean, a light going by in the sky is no big deal. 
if it could affect national security, you know, maybe it was chased by an airplane, maybe it shot down a jet that was trying to shoot it down, who knows? They're the ones that I want to find out about. Didn't see it until 79. I decided I wanted to find out more, so I located General Bolander. He was still alive then. And I said, it sounds to me, I gave him some background and stuff, that I'd had a security clearance for 14 years and read his memo. And I said, it sounds to me like you're saying there are two separate channels of information. One for the reports that could affect national security. And I gave him an example. Somebody had just before that told me about a saucer going down the runway of a strategic air command base where nuclear weapons were stored. That's national security, if somebody is where they're not supposed to be, where we've got nuclear weapons. Or conventional stuff, you know, if my wife and I go out at the end of the driveway and see a saucer fly by, no big deal, happens all the time. He agreed with me, two separate channels of information for communication about UFOs. Now, let's add into the picture something else. All the sources of good, solid data belong to the government. The radar sets, the aircraft, all this sort of stuff. So where the hell is the stuff going? I've been to Blue Book many times. I never saw that stuff which could affect national security. Now, fast forward. At the end of 1984, my colleague, Jamie Chandere in California, I had worked with him and Bill Moore especially with Bill on Roswell. I'm the original civilian investigator about the Roswell incident starting in 1978. Bill and I located 62 people within the next year and a half who were connected with the story. The first book came out in 1980. By 1986, we had found 92 people on Roswell. I've made a lifetime and next week I'll be in Roswell, New Mexico. But Jamie got a roll of film in the mail on which were two sets of eight negatives each, 35 millimeter. You remember film, you know, before this digital world. Uh, you got to negatives and you got to make prints and stuff like that. Uh, and those pages had a copy of a briefing report for President-elect Eisenhower about Operation Majestic 12. And what it says in there, seven pages, is that uh, he was going to be briefed before he became president. It said in there that President Truman established a group called Operation Majestic 12, accountable only to the president, mind you, and named the members of the group, and it went over the history of Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting that Roswell happened, bodies were found, An incredible statement, bunch of statements. And the question was, are the documents genuine or not? There's a, the letter from Truman to Secretary Forrestal from 1947, this briefing document, a list of attachments which aren't there. And it named the members of the group. Uh, they were all dead. Very convenient, you might say. There's no way to interrogate them. But realize, if the document is genuine, Whoever sent that was violating the law. 
It is against the law to transmit classified information to somebody who doesn't have an appropriate clearance and need to know. That's a violation of the law. So people say, why didn't the guy who put it together step forward? Because he'd have to admit he was violating the law. How do you prove a document is genuine? Well, you can look at the people named to be part of this group and everything was fine. I'll show you some of that. But it's been an intensive effort over a long period of time to try to check. I operate under the basic rule, have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. That's not an unpopular viewpoint. You're not supposed to. I mean, you just repeat what you think is true and that's good enough. And if you see it on YouTube, you know it's true, right? Oh boy. I get people who tell me that. I saw it on YouTube, it was on the internet. Doesn't that make it true? No, I hate to tell you that, but it doesn't. So, okay, we'll get on with the story, but Majestic 12, is the name of this group, which name undoubtedly has been changed because as soon as the name of a classified project, highly classified project gets released, it's gonna be changed. I've been involved in programs where we had to change the names we used for things because they got out. Can't use that code word anymore. <laughs> People know what it means, you know, that sort of thing. So, okay, let's get started. This is my, only my third lecture. I'm finally learning how to use this darn thing. There's the first page of the briefing document. See all that top secret magic, M-A-J-I-C, uh, eyes only. Now, you should understand that there are several levels of security. There's confidential, there's, there's restricted, there's confidential, there's secret, there's top secret, there's top secret code word. Magic is the code word here. And there are movie rights. It's <laughs> gonna be a movie, we hope, about magic men. Uh, myself and Don Schmidt and so forth. But anyway, uh, we get this document. Here's the list of people who are on this Majestic 12 committee. And a little easier to read. Uh, for those of you who are old enough and know about U.S. history, some of these names will be familiar. Uh, Hilden Coder, for example, was the director of Central Intelligence Agency at the time. Dr. Vannevar Bush was the scientific advisor to Roosevelt, that wasn't his title, but, and to Truman. He ran about 80 different high-tech development programs, including the development of the atomic bomb, radar, proximity fuse, all this kind of stuff. He was the go-to guy. And he was the father of compartmentalization. Just because you're in the same building with somebody who's working on a highly classified project, at your level of security, you have to have a need to know before you can find out what he's doing. That's the key thing. Security level and need to know. Because if you've got a spy, you don't want him to have access to everything. And I hate to admit this, but there have been spies, occasionally, like right in the middle of the development of the atomic bomb, for example. And we tend to forget the United States executed 
Ethel and her husband, Rosenbergs, for being spies. Executed a woman the first time. That had happened in a long time. That was in the 50s. We forget. Uh, being spies is taken seriously <laughs> by the government, finding them. Okay. Now, I want to call your attention to the third name up from the bottom, Dr. Donald Menzel. You see, when we got this document, we looked it over. Do we want to say anything publicly? Hell no. We don't know whether it's legitimate or not. And especially with Dr. Menzel's name on there. Because he was a UFO debunker, the best known in the world. Harvard University professor of astronomy wrote three UFO debunking books. Two things about Menzel. First of all, all these other guys had high-level security clearances. That was perfectly obvious if you spent 10 minutes looking at what they were doing and had been doing. You sure as heck don't need a security clearance to teach astronomy at Harvard. And secondly, he's a total debunker. How could he be part of such a committee when the document talks about a crash saucer at Roswell, alien bodies? Oh, we can't go public with this. So I dug in. All these guys were dead. Couldn't ask them. They wouldn't tell you the truth anyway if this was true. And uh, got in touch with Harvard, found out Menzel's papers were theirs. Uh, I had to get three different people to agree that it was okay for me to look at them. Went up there, got a grant from the fund for UFO research, and was totally shocked by what I found, because I didn't like him while he was alive. I had one run-in with him. And he's, I invited him to a lecture I was giving at Harvard. I gave him my name. Oh, I know who you are. I know all about you. Oh, you saw my congressional testimony next to yours? You can't be a scientist and believe in flying saucers, he said. At which I left. <laughs> he got angry, started to rant. I said, Dr. Menzel, I didn't call to argue with you. I called out of courtesy to invite you to my lecture, because I don't know if it was for an engineering society, whether they had publicized my program. Well, of course I won't be there. And I told the story that night, incidentally. So I was not disposed to think of him very kindly. Such a stupid thing. You can't be a scientist and believe in flying saucers. Okay, I get up to Harvard, and I had looked at his, his uh, correspondence files someplace else and didn't see anything exciting. But there's a JFK file, John F. Kennedy. I looked at that and was totally shocked by what I found because here's Donald Menzel telling President Kennedy he had worked to help elect him scientist for Kennedy. There's one area where I may be able to help you, especially, and that's with regard to the National Security Agency. Mr. Snowden's outfit, you know, that does all the secrecy stuff, no such agency, never says anything, all that stuff. I've had a longer continuous association with them, almost 30 years, than anybody in the country with them and their Navy predecessors. What? Where did that come from? I'd never seen anything like that. Two whole issues of Sky and Telescope magazine were devoted to Donald Menzel upon his death and his 100th anniversary of his birth. 
Not a word about this post-World War II highly classified material. Turned out he was one of the world's top cryptologists, code breakers, code makers. It goes on and on and on, but I was totally shocked. And when I wrote an article about this, half the people in ufology said, you've got to be crazy, Stan. He couldn't lead a double life. Well, I hate to tell you this, but every good spy leads a double life. Remember, there were three guys in England, Burgess, Philby, and McLean, who were Russian spies, but they were working for British intelligence. You've got to be careful when you do that so that nobody can trace back anything to you. So it has happened before. Anyway, those findings certainly encouraged me to dig into things. And these were outstanding people, and I talked to the families of all of them except one who isn't named who replaced Forrestal after Forrestal's death. That's what that asterisk means next to him. And none of them knew anything, but at least I had talked to families to get a handle on it. Here are all these people. Uh, you can see military guys. Now, the discussion went on with vigorous attacks from the debunkers, even within ufology. All kinds of crazy arguments. I'll just mention one. Somebody said, well, it says Admiral Hillencoder, but he was only a rear admiral. Obviously, the documents are fraud. They didn't point out that all the military ranks it says general, 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 admiral. Those are all generic ranks. In other words, you use the term general, whether it's brigadier general, major general, lieutenant general, four-star general. Admiral, there's rear admiral. There's another rank in there. Uh, so the fact that he's called admiral doesn't mean the documents are fraud. It meant the person was using a standard technique and President Eisenhower's staff secretary used that technique, generic ranks for military guys meeting with the president, including himself when he listed attendees at a meeting. General Goodpaster signed it, Brigadier General Goodpaster. I talked to two archivists. Standard practice then. I said, does it bother you that they use generic ranks? No, that's, Ike did. He mentioned one of his books, I dug it out. Yeah, general, when the guy wasn't a four star. So that is typical of the attacks that are made without checking, not having facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. We'll go through some of those. Anyway, it was an impressive cast of characters. This goes on, it talks about Kenneth Arnold's sighting, it talks about Roswell. Not much practice was made in finding things out until a rancher recovered wreckage at Roswell. Gives the date. A secret operation was begun on 07 July 1947 to find out about what we call the Roswell incident. Well, I'm the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident. And they said stuff was started by General Twining and I got his flight log, got his pilot's flight log, and sure enough, 
He did go to New Mexico in 1947, July 7th. It says that's when the investigation was begun. Uh, I talked to his, let's see, Twining, I talked to his daughter, his sons. Uh, the daughter was very helpful to me. Uh, anyway, you go through the document and it makes fascinating reading. It's in my book, which I'm sold out of. It's in my MJ-12 report, which there are a few left, but you can get them. Go to the internet, santonfriedman.com. I live in Fredericton, it's easy. There's a list of attachments. Boy, do I wish I had them. We don't. There's an exciting one, attachment A. Here's the letter from Truman. And this illustrates the, uh, the details you have to check on. You notice if you look carefully, I can't use a pointer here because I can't see the screen, but, uh, and if I point at this thing, you won't see the pointing up there. <laughs> Uh, you notice the 24 comma 1947 period up at the top. And it's offset a bit. If you do a straight line under September, the 24, 1947 period doesn't, it's not straight. Now, there are a couple of special things there. You'll notice the period at the end of the date. Dr. Bush's office always used a period at the end of the date, and he's measured in this, mentioned in this memo. Secondly, that turns out to be the only date in an eight-month period when Truman and Vannevar Bush and Secretary Forrest all met together. Now, how did the hoaxer, that's the answer, of course, a hoaxer did this. How did he know to use that date? I checked with the Truman Library. It was the only date that the three met together. Anybody else ever ask you about that? No. He threw a dart at a dart at a calendar, you know, pick a date. Well, it doesn't work. Bush even made notes after the meeting. Uh, notice the, whoops, supposed to be a signature there. Notice Harry Truman's signature. I've had people say that's too much like Harry Truman's signature. What do you expect it to be like for goodness sakes? No two signatures are alike, somebody said. They referred to a document supposedly in the 60s. The document he was referring to was actually written umpteen years ago, long before Xerox machines. Truman actually told his sister that after his incredible victory in 1948, you remember the headline of the Chicago paper, Dewey beats Truman? Nope, didn't happen. <laughs> Truman bent, beat Dewey. But he was sending thank you notes hundreds an hour. Don't tell me none of those had the same signature on them. You can have identical signatures, said the expert on signatures, only not consecutively. There's the date. You can see what special date. The date after the period. 
two different typewriters used. Well, I talked to somebody, I managed to locate somebody, thanks to the Truman Library, named George Elsie, who worked for Truman the entire time he was in the White House. And I asked if I could send him the documents and get his opinion on them and then call him. And I did that. And just before I called him, I suddenly realized, oh, if he knows anything, he can't tell me. So I got to ask my questions carefully. Not, are the documents genuine? Did you see any reason to think the documents were fraudulent? He could answer that. I asked him a lot of questions. He was very helpful. He saw no reason to say the documents were fraudulent. You haven't seen a couple of other ones, but uh, we'll see them. Uh, I asked about this business of being in a typewriter, more than two different typewriters. It happened often. You don't put the date part on until you're absolutely sure it's the right day. In other words, you prepare a memo for Truman's signature, but you don't put in the typewriter to give the date until whenever what you're talking about happens, because that's a record, an official record, and so you better put the right date on it. And so I had several examples that I found of the date being partially done with a different typewriter, the numbers versus the words. So rather than proving fraud, it doesn't prove fraud. Uh, Now here's a very controversial one. Uh, my colleagues got some postcards, crazy postcards, talking about going to Washington and other words. And I found out that they were reviewing at the Library of Congress Manuscript Division, Air Force Headquarters files for the period in question. When they finally finished the classification reviewing, uh, I told Jamie and Bill, they went to Washington, Library of Congress Manuscript Division. They'd gotten a postcard that said from box 176, something like that, uh, a place in New Zealand, crazy place. But when they got there, I had been told that they were declassifying the Air Force headquarters files. They went to those and they found this document between pages, it was folded up as if it had been in somebody's pocket. And it was in box 176, which is quite unexpected. Anyway, it's just a brief note, but it says, NSC, National Security Council, MJ-12 Special Studies Project. And the name on it is Robert Cutler. He was Ike's Special Assistant to the President for National Security. And he's just telling General Twining that a meeting will take place during an already scheduled meeting instead of after it as originally instructed to him. And Twining was chief of staff, so you gotta let him know how his time is being spent. The president's telling him. The only trouble is that Robert Cutler was out of the country, we found out later. How could he send such a memo? Well, it turns out he left instructions behind. Keep things moving out of my inbox. 
to a guy named James Lay, executive secretary of the National Security Council, and somebody else. So I did a lot of checking. It turns out Lay talked to Eisenhower, met with Eisenhower that day, and they had a phone conversation later in the day. The, the Eisenhower Archives has records of all this kind of stuff. So when I talked to George Elsie, I said, it seems to me that that memo could have been written by James Lay. And he said, well, of course. He said, he tells me, I didn't know it, that Lay sat next to Cutler at all the meetings of the National Security Council. He each got copies of everything the other guy did. And he was one of the guys instructed to keep things moving out of Cutler's basket. And I found a letter from Lay to Cutler while he was overseas explaining what had happened at the meeting of the National Security Council. And when I asked George Elsie, uh, do you think it's possible that Lay wrote this memo? He said, of course. It's just a simple change of time. They work very closely together. Well, coming from somebody who was there, that's important information. So I'm satisfied it was Cutler. Now you look at the upper right-hand part, and you can't see it on the Xerox copy, but in the original, there's a slant red pencil line through the crazy security marking, top secret restricted. Oh, there was another one. People said, oh no, the government didn't use top secret restricted. Nobody used it until years after this. I'm reading through the General Accounting Office accounting. They were looking for Roswell documents, thanks to Congressman Stephen Schiff. And they visited all kinds of facilities. They had all kinds of clearances. And on page 81, they were visiting a certain facility with had materials up through top secret. They didn't find any Roswell stuff. However, we noted several instances of the use of top secret restricted even though we had been told, majestic 12 in parentheses, that it was not in use at that time. Well, I immediately called my contact at the GAO. I need to get copies of those documents. Stan, they're still classified. You can't get copies of them. It's good enough for me that they said so. So here's one of those, proves it's a fraud. No way. Now, it turns out the typeface here, for those of you who remember typewriters, is the large pica type. Oh no, said Philip Klass, Mr. Noisy Negativist of the Year and Decade. Uh, National Security Council only used elite type, small elite type. Perhaps you didn't notice that, Stan. Of course I had noticed it. I noticed three different typewriters for pica type. I will offer you $100 each for every genuine memo done in the same size and style type and meeting certain qualifications. He had several different things that were required. Within the next 60 days, $100 each up to a maximum of 10. Well, I went to my files. I had loads of copies of documents and I pulled out 20 done in PICA type. They didn't all meet his criteria, I knew that. But I was toying, teasing him, if you will. I said, he accepted two. 
and thought he had me. Well, I was going to the Eisenhower Library, so I, when I went there, I immediately picked out 14 that met all his criteria, sent him copies in an invoice for $1,000, and he paid me. Wait a minute, it's supposed to be a copy of his check. Well, maybe we'll get there. He got very angry at when I, me when I published a copy of his check in a report that I wrote. <laughs> Threatened to sue me, because it says MJ-12 research on the bottom. Okay, here's another memo. Oh, from Bobby Cutler. And you'll notice where it's circled down the bottom. Slash S slash, that means original signed by. That's another way of keeping track of who wrote what. And it's a top secret document. And something else to compare to. There's the original, and that slant red pencil mark. When I was at the Eisenhower Library, I asked somebody, because I saw some other indications like that, what does that mean? He says, well, that's standard practice. When we're going to declassify something, we put a slant red pencil mark through the security marking. I didn't know that, and I had lots of visits to archives. Nobody else knew it either. But how did the hoaxer know it? That makes it legitimate, not phony. Uh, incidentally, there's a watermark on this paper. Uh, when you hold it up to the light, you can see it. And we found the company that made the paper. There's another place. I was told that all of Cutler's carbon copies, if you will, uh, are done on this kind of paper, certain watermark. Well, when I was at the library, I pointed out several examples of ones that weren't done on that kind of paper. We found a company that made it. They made, the government bought lots of it. Uh, so again, it works. There's, that, believe it or not, is me on the right. This is a long time ago, 1985. And Jamie in the middle and Bill Moore on the left. Uh, some of us have gotten a little older since then. Other documents. I've got to go through these quickly. I realize I'm taking too much time here, but... Oh, there's the letter about... Uh, from the Eisenhower Library. Uh, keep things moving out of my in-basket, it says. There's Bobby Cutler. There's James Lay. And there's George Elsie on the right and on the left, you know, in the picture. He was with Truman when he went to the Potsdam Conference, proving he was a high official in the government, that is, he had access to the president every day. And so, Elsie uh, said, of course, Lay would have written the memo. There's Dr. Donald Menzel. And this is the letter from the attorney to Vannevar Bush about Menzel almost losing his security clearance, which nobody knew he had. 
everybody told me Menzel couldn't have been a part of the group. There's even a recent article about his contributions to cryptology. Uh, the guy led a double life. More power to him. I developed a lot of respect for him. Major contributions to American security. Even though he was lying through his teeth about flying saucers. Sometimes you got to do that. There's Ike Staff Secretary General Goodpaster, who called himself general even though he was a brigadier general. Signed brigadier general. There's General Twining. Oh, Twining was supposed to go someplace else. Wound up going to New Mexico. Something of great importance had come up. He was supposed to go out to Seattle for uh, Boeing. We'll have to make the trip later on, he says. There's Mr. Class. This is about the uh, typeface on the memo. He called the Truman Forrestal memo a letter 11 times when he was saying what a bad, how phony it was. It says memorandum on him, on it. There's this check to me for proving him wrong. But even though his papers are at the Library of Congress, uh, not the Library of Congress, the American Philosophical Society Library, there is no Friedman file. We corresponded for 20 years. None of that's in those files. I don't think he wanted anybody to know. You notice the words MJ-12 research down the bottom? He had never been at the Eisenhower Library. Remember the basic rules. One of them is don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. And what the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. He thought he could get away with it. No way. There's more about the stuff I've already talked about. Oh, there's a line, your concurrence in the above change of arrangements is assumed. General Twining's pilot, I managed to locate him through Twining's daughter. And he gave me a copy of his pilot's log and I got Twining's log. And Twining's pilot told me that he often saw Twining with Vannevar Bush, another member of this team. And that standard phraseology, your concurrence is assumed. That means you don't need to respond. That saves a lot of classified letters going back and forth. Box 189, I said 176, I was wrong. It says what date they started things. Again, I had the pilot's logs and that's the right date. I could prove where he went when, General Twining. Both his and his pilot's pilot log. Okay, big picture. Now, we know there was a lot of stuff done at Project Blue Book, even though apparently they weren't the recipient of the important stuff, those sightings which could affect national security. 
This is the biggest study ever done for Project Blue Book. Well, it's the biggest one we know about, let's put it that way. Special report number 14. Here's what the Secretary of the Air Force said. This is in the press release that accompanied this report, except the press release got wide distribution. Practically nobody got a copy of the report. Way back in 1955, on the basis of this study, we believe no objects such as those popularly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. I feel certain that even the unknown 3% could have been explained as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been obtained. That's what the Secretary of the Air Force said. It appeared in newspapers around the world. I happened to find a copy. What led me to this was I found a copy of it at the University of California Berkeley Library, which had the press release in it. And I'm looking at the report. He was lying through his teeth. I don't like that. I don't like a high official openly lying. Why do I say he was lying? Well, I'll show you the tables in a minute. There are other people who've said things that weren't true. My college classmate, Carl Sagan, said, the reliable cases are uninteresting. The interesting cases are unreliable. Unfortunately, there are no cases that are both reliable and interesting. Carl provided no reference for that misinformation. It's totally untrue. He did more than anybody else to get people to think about extraterrestrial intelligence. He refused to look at the UFO evidence. Here's the categorization. Remember he said even the unknown 3%. Look at the bottom line. The unknowns, 21.5%? That's hardly 3%. It's not even close. And notice the next to the last line insufficient information. And yet the secretary says when there was enough data, if there had been enough data, we'd have identified them all. 9.3%, not enough data. By definition, I call that lying. I don't like it. Here's the evaluation by quality. Carl said reliable. He didn't look at the data. The better the quality of the sighting, the more reliability of the sighting, the more likely to be unexplainable. I published this data in places where Carl I know had it. My congressional testimony, for example. Uh, so you've got to be careful because people make claims without providing supporting evidence or even a reference to where you can find the evidence. Now. I've been challenged by people telling me, Stan, there is no cover-up of UFO data. Government's not holding anything back. Really? That sounds good. I mean, admittedly, government people have said there is no cover-up. The facts speak otherwise. This is a typical one of many dozens of CIA top secret Umbra UFO documents by their designation. You can read uh, eight words. No cover-up? And people have said to me, why don't you just scrape off the block? You can't. They send you a Xerox. There's nothing underneath it that you can find. And then there's the dear old NSA. 
156 top secret Umbra UFO documents from the NSA. All like this one, you can read one sentence. Everything else is whited out. And I had guys tell me their NSA isn't holding back anymore. I said, can you read what's under the whiteout? Well, no, well then they are. Oh, it's sources and methods information, Stan. Yeah, 98% sources and methods and 2% information. Does that make any sense at all? No, it does not. And this is all old stuff. How many more since then? We don't know. There is a cover-up. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I had written uh, Air Force Intelligence, and I found out, that somebody else found it, that they put out a letter after I wrote. If you get, we expect that you'll be getting a request from Stanton Friedman. Now, they were nice. They whited out my address, protecting my privacy, uh, that you'll get a request from him for information about UFOs. And if such a request is received, do not, repeat, do not respond as required by an Air Force regulation. Instead, send the request here to headquarters. So they're telling their own people, forget the regulations, let us handle it. And there's no cover-up? Oh, the FBI, the Friendly Brothers of Investigation. Oh no, that's not what it stands for. <laughs> Federal Bureau of Investigation. Dr. Bruce McAbee, an outstanding scientist, optical physicist, uh, he filed one of the early Freedom of Information Act requests for UFO stuff of the FBI. Didn't know what to expect. The FBI has never said they had anything. And he got 1,500 pages, much to his surprise, including a number of letters like this one where Hoover wrote people, it is not now nor has it ever been the role of the FBI to investigate UFOs. 1,500 pages. Everybody and his brother was keeping secrets from the American public, and therefore from the Canadian and other publics as well. Here's the Bolander memo. Well, here's a plaque about General Bolander, commander of a certain flight squadron during World War II. And when I talked to him, one of the comments he made, this was in uh, 10 years after 69, but in 69 at the time when he wrote this in October, he said the nice thing was after we landed on the moon, he didn't have to work 12-hour days anymore. <laughs> he worked on the lunar excursion module, and we, we forget. It was an enormous concern at NASA, and that lunar trip, that first trip to the moon. There were a zillion things that could go wrong. Fortunately, they didn't. But part of the concern was the lunar excursion module. We'd never done anything like that before. It was an incredible accomplishment. One of the reasons I say that is because it united the American people, which is pretty darn hard to do. It was national pride, world pride, in that successful accomplishment. I know there are still people who say, we didn't go to the moon. Uh, the forward to my book, Flying Saucers and Science, was written by Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. And I believe we did go to the moon. We also have samples that came back from there. 
How did they get back here if the astronauts didn't bring them? You know, interesting question. Anyway, Bolander was real. The story of MJ-12 is a complicated one. It's not over. Here's my book, Top Secret Magic, about it. Uh, includes a lot of the stuff I've talked about. And I have put together lists of, um, one list of 12 false claims made by debunkers and another list of things that were, we didn't know to be true until long after we got the documents. Coincidence? Hardly. So it's complicated. A fierce protector of Majestic 12. One of the things, you know, there should have been a signature or an S. I've mentioned all that stuff. It's trivia, but you build enough of it and you have to say, how did anybody know that? And I've had people ask me, why didn't the guy who wrote the memo or who filmed the memo come forward? Because he was breaking the law. He's going to stand up and say, well, uh, I broke the law. Arrest me now. You cannot give top secret material to somebody without a clearance or a need to know. That's a violation of the law. Just like some people said, well, all those guys on that group, they certainly would have told their wives what they were doing. Forget it. I never told my wife anything classified. I can't control what she says or who's listening or anything like that. The man who headed the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons, his wife found out what he was doing the day of the first explosion in Hiroshima. She didn't know before that he was working on an atomic bomb. What the heck's an atomic bomb? It was a secret city, Los Alamos. Thousands of people working there. I won't go into the trivia. Oh, you get strange objections. National. Uh, the White House, the National Security Council uh, guy at the National Archives said that, well, there was no NSC meeting on that day, that Cutler-Twining memo. It doesn't say it was an NSC meeting. It says the already scheduled meeting, which is not the same thing because there were all kinds of meetings at the White House. And I even have proof that Ike might spend a little while in one meeting or people seeing Ike would spend some time with him, go out to a separate meeting of a different group, then come back. That's the way these things work. People's time is precious. You're over at the White House, take care of stuff. Just to mention that there's one heck of a lot of research on Roswell. And there is a DVD out there First-hand testimony from 21 Roswell witnesses. They're all dead now. You can't talk to them anymore, but you can watch their testimony. You can decide for yourself. This is not somebody saying, party A saying, this is what party B said. This is first-hand testimony from people who handled wreckage, were there, et cetera, et cetera. The data's there. And as I told the other day, some people say that RAAF is Royal Australian Air Force. That's one of those silly ones. Roswell Army Airfield was the name of the base. 
Chicago Daily News. I had one critic say it was only in the Roswell paper. Roswell is not in Chicago the last time I checked. It isn't even close. You know. I've had some people say, well, it, they didn't use the term disc. Yes, they did. There's the headline. This goes to high officers. That's one of my favorite headlines. That's from the, the Los Angeles uh, newspaper. Didn't a, a much bigger paper than the Roswell Daily Record, in case you're wondering. It was big news for a day. There's New Mexico. New Mexico is an interesting state. A lot of land, not many people. In case you're wondering, the first atomic bomb was tested in New Mexico. Why? Because there was no people there. And you know, kind of funny, lots of people called the sheriff. The bomb test was successful. It was seen from 100 miles away. And people were calling the sheriff, hey, what happened? They didn't say anything for a couple of days and they finally put out a memo, a press release, saying that an ammunition dump had blown up and fortunately nobody was injured. Will governments lie? Of course they will. Uh, they corrected that a few weeks later after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But New Mexico is a place where lots of strange things happen because there's room. That's where we're firing all the captured German V2 rockets, that area in yellow is the uh, White Sands Missile Range. You don't fire rockets when there's lots of people around. <laughs> it's kind of dangerous. Uh, Mexicans got upset. One of the rockets went south instead of north <laughs> and landed in Mexico. It didn't have a bomb on it, but still, uh, nobody likes having rockets dropped on their head. And you can see Roswell is 200 miles from Albuquerque. Southeast, the right, lower right-hand corner of the thing. It's not on the way to anywhere. If you're in Roswell, which I will be next week, it's because you want to be there. It's the annual UFO festival at the International UFO Museum and Research Center. Uh, a lot of stuff to see. And yes, they have parades with little kids waving at us in our convertibles. And I got people getting mad at me. Oh, Stan, come on, they're just playing games down there, costume contests. Well, if you're going out of your way to go to a place that's out of the way and you're taking your kids, it would be nice if there was something for them to do instead of just go to the museum and look at exhibits. Not, uh, some of you may know that uh, not all kids like spending their time at museums, <laughs> uh, especially in something like this. So New Mexico, if you go to visit, incidentally, lots of sunscreen. It'll be hot next week, 100 degrees. It's at 3,500 feet. And in case you're wondering, a couple of people have said things to me about going to Area 51 and Roswell on the same trip. I have to point out they're 600 miles apart. They're not next door to each other. And Area 51 didn't exist when Roswell happened wasn't built until years later. So don't tell me they immediately took the stuff to Area 51. There was no Area 51 at the time. One of the many myths that gets promulgated. 
There's General Roger Ramey, head of the 8th Air Force. He's the one on the left in a hat. Uh, and he's holding wreckage of uh, a weather balloon that was substituted for the real wreckage that was brought there by Major Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer for the 509th, the most elite military group in the world. They were the group at Roswell who dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and two more in Operation Crossroads the next year. And yet one of the critics says an anonymous press officer put out an unauthorized press release without bothering to mention that this was the 509th, the most elite group in the world. And I've had people say, the base commander, a loose cannon. Sure, he got four more promotions and was a four-star general when he died of a massive heart attack as vice chief of staff of the United States Air Force. Doesn't sound like a loose cannon to me. You remember that was the only Air Force in the world at the time that had nuclear weapons. Uh, Interesting piece of paper in General Ramey's hand. If this was done with a digital camera, you wouldn't be able to read it because the resolution isn't good enough, but it was done with a speed graphic press camera. And some clever people have actually managed to read it. And my favorite line is, victims of the wreck. Uh, weather balloons don't have victims of wrecks, in case you're thinking about that for a little bit. And I managed to locate the other man in the picture. Uh, Ramey was dead, I couldn't reach him. Blanchard was dead, talked to family, but. There's Tommy DuBose, umpteen years later. He was the guy with Ramey. He told me in person that he took the call from Ramey's boss, General McMullen in Washington, giving him three instructions. I want you to get the press off our back. I don't care how you do it. You see Major Marcel, they brought in the wreckage, base public information officer, put out the press release. The story went all over the place. McMullen tells then Colonel DuBose, who was a general when I found him. Get the press off our back, I don't care how you do it. Send some of that wreckage up here today to Washington from Texas with one of your colonel couriers. And I don't want you ever to talk about it again. That's an order. Do I need to put it in writing, Colonel? No, sir. When a two-star general, all West Pointers here, tells a colonel what to do, he does it. This is 1947, two years after the war was over. We had to censor some of what Tommy said about what was going on at the base. He was talking about some of the women on the base and some of the officers at the base, but we won't go into that. Uh, he took us, Don Schmidt and I, the second trip, nicest restaurant in town, great guy, Florida. There's Jesse Marcel. Major Jesse Marcel, he was instructed to hold some of this wreckage. And you don't say anything, we'll take care of it, said General Ramey to him. And when a general tells a major what to do, he does it. So he knew it was part of a lie, but 
You follow orders. Love that headline. All those three pictures had to do with this uh, flying disc. At Alamogordo, they launched stuff to tell the press, no, nothing going on at Roswell. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. They lied. Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., the at that time 11-year-old son of Major Marcel, handled pieces of the wreckage. He died last year. He was a medical doctor, a pilot, was sent, called back in to serve as a helicopter pilot because he was a flight surgeon, Middle East, flew 225 combat hours. He was called back in at age 68. Pretty hard up when you got to call the guy back in to fly combat missions at age 68. He wasn't complaining. He was a patriot. He also served in another place that we never were, Cambodia. His helicopter got shot down there, that Vietnamese war, you know. And they made it back to our lines. Was there another lie? Oh yeah, the government said we were never in Cambodia. Jesse was there. Three other witnesses. The woman in the middle is the neighbor of the rancher. Her brother on the left, he was on the airplane that flew some of the wreckage from there to Texas, General Ramey's stuff. The one on the right was an officer and a pilot at the base. He saw them carrying wreckage out to that plane. Sappho Henderson, her husband was a pilot. A lot of missions in Europe during the war. He was chosen to carry a load of wreckage from, and bodies from Roswell to Texas. And he only told her about it when he saw an article in the National Enquirer talking about Roswell crash and bodies. Figured the story was out. Man on the left was Pappy Henderson, her husband's close friend, and he had shown him some wreckage on his honor as a former naval officer not to talk about it, which he didn't while Pappy was alive. Talked to both these guys. There's Colonel Blanchard, loose cannon indeed. Here's his obituary from the New York Times. Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force. On his way up, he had had thousands of nuclear weapons under his control. Loose cannon? I don't think so. Air Force? Well, you might expect, they lied. Uh, this was the mogul balloon explanation. You see, there are four explanations, you, just in sequence. Flying saucer captured, flying disc. Oh, sorry, gee whiz, it was a weather balloon with a radar reflector. As if the people at Roswell couldn't identify those. They, loaded, they launched weather balloons every day. Then the third explanation, oh, it was really a mogul balloon super secret special balloon train, 20 to 25 balloons at 20 foot intervals. Stay at a steady altitude. Listen for a Soviet nuclear test. There hadn't been one yet. Uh, super secret? No, the mission was secret. None of the technology was secret. They lied again. No launch fit in the time frame. Well, they didn't say anything about bodies. 
Well, we got to make up for that. Oh, there's what a mogul balloon train looks like. Then they put out the Roswell report. Case closed. All those stories of bodies just crash test dummies. We were dropping them all over New Mexico. They show the same map three times. None of the drop sites were near where the crash occurred. Kind of interesting. The dummies in the middle. Uh, the man on the right, Colonel Mazden, he was in charge of the program. None of the crash test dummies were dropped until six years after Roswell. So they figured out time travel for crash test dummies. Got away with it. As the colonel told me, the dummies were six feet tall and weighed 175 pounds. They had to be the same size as pilots because we're going to drop one out of an airplane, ejection seats they were working on for high-flying airplanes and stuff. It better be very close to the real thing. Of course, when they hit the ground, sometimes the arms came off and the legs came off. Obviously, all the ranchers would be fooled and think these were aliens, right? Jeez. In Air Force uniform, which is kind of a neat trick. Sometimes the depths of the line get you down a little bit. Here's my book about Roswell. Corona is the name of the town closest to where the crash actually occurred. They loved me in Corona. <laughs> At the time of the 50th anniversary, had the sign on their old movie theater, forget about Roswell, it all happened here. It's a very small town, incidentally. Dr. Marcel wrote this book with his wife. He just died last year, as I said. Uh, and of course, when he was interviewed for the Peter Jennings special, they didn't bother to mention that he was serving at the time as a flight surgeon in the Middle East, was a colonel, and was a medical doctor. Now, if those things don't go to credibility, I don't know what does. But if you're going to look for the truth, you've got to look hard. Oh, this is that DVD that I mentioned, first-hand testimony about Roswell. Lots of it. 108 minutes long. James McDonald, the finest ufologist ever. I can't sell you a copy of his report. His congressional testimony, 41 outstanding sightings because I'm out of them. The best ufologist ever. Dr. J. Allen Hynek, professor of astronomy at Northwestern University, the Air Force Project Blue Book scientific consultant for 20 years. When I gave him a copy of that Bolander memo that I mentioned, he was angry. They used us as he realized that they hadn't been getting the good stuff. I don't know why he thought they had been, but they weren't getting it. More than 70 cases that couldn't be explained in this book. University of Colorado study, no evidence, was 965 pages long, and 30% of the 117 cases studied in detail could not be identified. Now, the head of the program was Dr. Condon. He never said that. Nothing of use. Nothing to flying saucers. 
a lie. You also said his files weren't preserved. Well, they're at the, the uh, American Philosophical Society Library. Didn't want anybody looking at them, I guess. Oh, another report came out, SOM 101. Uh, it's instructions for military guys what they should do if a saucer crashes. How to handle the bodies, the cover stories put out to the press, all that sort of stuff. I think there, this is the fourth document that's genuine. All kinds of details. Dr. Robert M. Wood, PhD, was head of research for McDonnell Douglas Astronautics, got into exhaustive study of SOM 101. Got a couple copies of this DVD, back and forth between me and debunkers. Nuclear rocket engine, just so you know that we have worked on such things. Liquid hydrogen comes in very, very cold, goes out very, very hot, and you get thrust. And these were operated successfully out in the nuclear test site. There's one of them, worked on this at Westinghouse. Only 1,100 megawatts, half the power of Hoover Dam this big. Operated in the 1960s. Nuclear-powered submarine, goes around the world underwater. Nuclear-powered aircraft carrier operates for 18 years without refueling. 18 years. And you don't think we can use nuclear energy to get to the stars? You're wrong. Uh, first H-bomb, three-mile-wide fireball. Final report, it's not final, but I had a contract to do some research, so I had to call it final report. Uh, other Truman signatures and data. All the signatures, you notice the, the upper cross on the T. One wag said they always stopped uh, rest near the respectfully or sincerely yours. Well, you can see they don't. One of my favorite cartoons the St. John newspaper, St. John, New Brunswick newspaper, had an article about my being named to the Roswell Hall of Fame. And that's what it says, Roswell UFO Wall of, Hall of Fame, in that little thing I'm holding up. Always nice to be recognized by your peers. I guess he means the little guys are my peers. I don't know. I'm not tall enough, I guess. There's going to be a movie, maybe. Hollywood Unpredictable Magic Men. Myself, Don Schmidt on the right, and the producer of the movie maybe is in the middle. I hope we find out in the next five years while I'm still alive <laughs> whether it's going to be made or not. And that concludes today's presentation. Thank you very much. <laughs>